Chapter sixty seven and sixty eight of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter sixty seven. As soon as Ernest found that he had no money to look upon leaving prison, he saw that his dreams about emigrating and farming must come to an end, for he knew that he was incapable of working at the plough or with the axe for long together himself. And now it seemed he should have no money to pay anyone else for doing so. It was this that resolved him to part once and for all with his parents. If he had been going abroad he could have kept up relations with them, for they would have been too far off to interfere with him. He knew his father and mother would object to being cut. They would wish to appear kind and forgiving. They would also dislike having no further power to plague him. But he knew also very well that so long as he and they ran in harness together, they would be always pulling one way, and he another. He wanted to drop the gentleman and go down into the ranks, beginning on the lowest rung of the ladder where no one would know of his disgrace or mind it if he did know. His father and mother, on the other hand, would wish him to clutch on to the fag end of gentility at a starvation salary and with no prospect of advancement. Ernest had seen enough of Ashpit Place to know that a tailor, if he did not drink and attend to his business, could earn more money than a clerk or a curate, while much less expense by way of show was required of him. The tailor also had more liberty, and a better chance of rising. Ernest resolved at once, as he had fallen so far, to fall still lower. Promptly, gracefully, and with the idea of rising again, rather than cling to the skirts of respectability which would permit him to exist on sufferance only, and make him pay an utterly extortionate price for an article which he could do better without. He had arrived at this result more quickly than he might otherwise have done through remembering something he had once heard his aunt say about kissing the soil. This had impressed him and stuck by him perhaps by reason of its brevity. When later on he came to know the story of Hercules and Antaeus, he found it one of the very few ancient fables which had a hold over him, his chiefest debt to classical literature. His aunt had wanted him to learn carpentering, as a means of kissing the soil, should his Hercules ever throw him. It was too late for this now, or he thought it was, but the mode of carrying out his aunt's idea was a detail. There were a hundred ways of kissing the soil, besides becoming a carpenter. He had told me this during our interview, and I had encouraged him to the utmost of my power. He showed so much more good sense than I had given him credit for that I became comparatively easy about him, and determined to let him play his own game, being always, however, ready to hand in case things went too far wrong. It was not simply because he disliked his father and mother that he wanted to have no more to do with them. If it had been only this, he would have put up with them but a warning voice within told him distinctly enough that if he was clean cut away from them he might still have a chance at success. 
whereas if they had anything whatever to do with him, or even knew where he was, they would hamper him and in the end ruin him. Absolute independence he believed to be his only chance of very life itself. Over and above this, if this were not enough, Ernest had a faith in his own destiny, such as most young men, I suppose, feel, but the grounds of which were not apparent to any one but himself. Rightly or wrongly, in a quiet way, he believed he possessed a strength which, if he were only free to use it in his own way, might do great things some day. He did not know when, nor where, nor how his opportunity was to come, but he never doubted that it would come, in spite of all that had happened, and above all else he cherished the hope that he might know how to seize it if it came, for whatever it was it would be something that no one else could do so well as he could. People said there were no dragons and giants for adventurous men to fight with nowadays. It was beginning to dawn upon him that there were just as many now as at any past time. Monstrous as such a faith may seem in one who was qualifying himself for a high mission by a term of imprisonment, he could no more help it than he could help breathing. It was innate in him. It was even more with a view to this than for other reasons that he wished to sever the connection between himself and his parents. For he knew that if ever the day came in which it should appear that before him too there was a race set in which it might be an honor to have run among the foremost. His father and mother would be the first to let him and hinder him in running it. They had been the first to say that he ought to run such a race. They would also be the first to trip him up if he took them at their word, and then afterwards upbraid him for not having won. Achievement of any kind would be impossible for him unless he was free from those who would be forever dragging him back into the conventional. The conventional had been tried already, and had been found wanting. He had an opportunity now, if he chose to take it, of escaping once for all from those who at once tormented him and would hold him earthward should a chance of soaring open before him. He should never have had it but for his imprisonment, but for this the force of habit and routine would have been too strong for him. He should hardly have had it if he had not lost all his money. The gap would not have been so wide but that he might have been inclined to throw a plank across it. He rejoiced now, therefore, over his loss of money as well as over his imprisonment, which had made it more easy for him to follow his truest and most lasting interests. At times he wavered, when he thought of how his mother, who in her way, as he thought, had loved him, would weep and think sadly over him, or how perhaps she might even fall ill and die, and how the blame would rest with him. At these times his resolution was near breaking, but when he found I applauded his design, the voice within, which bade him see his father's and mother's faces no more, grew louder and more persistent. If he could not cut himself adrift from those who he knew would hamper him, 
when so small an effort was wanted. His dream of a destiny was idle. What was the prospect of a hundred pounds from his father in comparison with jeopardy to this? He still felt deeply the pain his disgrace had inflicted upon his father and mother. But he was getting stronger, and reflected that as he had run his chance with them for parents, so they must run theirs with him for a son. He had nearly settled down to this conclusion when he received a letter from his father, which made his decision final. If the prison rules had been interpreted strictly, he would not have been allowed to have this letter for another three months, as he had already heard from me. But the governor took a lenient view, and considered the letter from me to be a business communication, hardly coming under the category of a letter from friends. Theobald's letter, therefore, was given to his son. It ran as follows. My dear Ernest, My object in writing is not to upbraid you with the disgrace and shame you have inflicted upon your mother and myself, to say nothing of your brother Joey and your sister. Suffer, of course, we must, but we know to whom to look in our affliction, and are filled with anxiety rather on your behalf than our own. Your mother is wonderful, she is pretty well in health, and desires me to send you her love. Have you considered your prospects on leaving prison? I understand from Mr. Overton that you have lost the legacy which your grandfather left you, together with all the interest that accrued during your minority, in the course of speculation upon the stock exchange. If you have indeed been guilty of such appalling folly, it is difficult to see what you can turn your hand to, and I suppose you will try to find a clerkship in an office. Your salary will doubtless be low at first, but you have made your bed and must not complain if you have to lie upon it. If you take pains to please your employers, they will not be backward in promoting you. When I first heard from Mr. Overton of the unspeakable calamity which had befallen your mother and myself, I had resolved to not see you again. I am unwilling, however, to have recourse to a measure which would deprive you of your last connecting link with respectable people. Your mother and I will see you as soon as you come out of prison, not at Battersby. We do not wish you to come down here at present, but somewhere else, probably in London. You need not shrink from seeing us. We will not reproach you. We will then decide about your future. At present our impression is that you will find a fairer start probably in Australia or New Zealand than here, and I am prepared to find you seventy-five pounds, or even, if necessary, so far as one hundred pounds, to pay your passage money. Once in the colony you must be dependent upon your own exertions. May heaven prosper them and you, and restore you to us years hence a respectable member of society. Your affectionate father, T. Pontifex. Then there was a postscript in Christina's writing. My darling, darling boy, pray with me daily and hourly that we may yet again become a happy, united, God-fearing family, as we were before this horrible pain fell upon us. Your sorrowing but ever-loving mother, C. P. 
This letter did not produce the effect on Ernest that it would have done before his imprisonment began. His father and mother thought they could take him up as they had left him off. They forgot the rapidity with which development follows misfortune, if the sufferer is young and of a sound temperament. Ernest made no reply to his father's letter, but his desire for a total break developed into something like a passion. There are orphanages, he exclaimed to himself, for children who have lost their parents. Oh, why, why, why are there no harbors of refuge for grown men who have not yet lost them? And he brooded over the bliss of Melchizedek, who had been born an orphan, without father, without mother, and without descent. Chapter 68 When I think over all that Ernest told me about his prison meditations, and the conclusions he was drawn to, it occurs to me that in reality he was wanting to do the very last thing which it would have entered into his head to think of wanting. I mean that he was trying to give up father and mother for Christ's sake. He would have said he was giving them up because he thought they hindered him in the pursuit of his truest and most lasting happiness. Granted, but what is this if it is not Christ? What is Christ if he is not this? He who takes the highest and most self-respecting view of his own welfare, which it is in his power to conceive, and adheres to it in spite of conventionality, is a Christian whether he knows it and calls himself one, or whether he does not. A rose is not the less a rose, because it does not know its own name. What if circumstance had made his duty more easy for him than it would be to most men? That was his luck as much as it is other people's luck to have other duties made easy for them by accident of birth. Surely if people are born rich or handsome, they have a right to their good fortune. Some, I know, will say that one man has no right to be born with a better constitution than another. Others, again, will say that luck is the only righteous object of human veneration. Both, I dare say, can make out a very good case. But whichever may be right, surely Ernest had as much right to the good luck of finding a duty made easier as he had had to the bad fortune of falling into the scrape which had got him into prison. A man is not to be sneered at for having a trump card in his hand. He is only to be sneered at if he plays his trump card badly. Indeed, I question whether it is ever much harder for anyone to give up father and mother for Christ's sake than it was for Ernest. The relations between the parties will have almost always been severely strained before it comes to this. I doubt whether anyone was ever yet required to give up those to whom he was tenderly attached for a mere matter of conscience. He will have ceased to be tenderly attached to them long before he is called upon to break with them. For differences of opinion concerning any manner of vital importance spring from differences of constitution, and these will already have led to so much other disagreement that the giving up, when it comes, is like giving up an aching but very loose and hollow tooth. 
it is the loss of those whom we are not required to give up for Christ's sake, which is really painful to us. Then there is a wrench in earnest. Happily, no matter how light the task that is demanded from us, it is enough if we do it. We reap our reward much as though it were a Herculean labor. But to return, the conclusion Ernest came to was that he would be a tailor. He talked the matter over with the chaplain, who told him there was no reason why he should not be able to earn his six or seven shillings a day by the time he came out of prison, if he chose to learn the trade during the remainder of his term, not quite three months. The doctor said he was strong enough for this, and that it was about the only thing he was yet fit for, so he left the infirmary sooner than he would otherwise have done, and entered the tailor's shop, overjoyed at the thoughts of seeing his way again, and confident of rising some day if he could get a firm foothold to start from. Everyone whom he had to do with saw that he did not belong to what are called the criminal classes, and finding him eager to learn, and to save trouble, always treated him kindly and almost respectfully. He did not find the work irksome. It was far more pleasant than making Latin and Greek verses at Roughborough. He felt that he would rather be here in prison than at Roughborough again. Yes, or even at Cambridge itself. The only trouble he was ever in danger of getting into was through exchanging words or looks with the more decent-looking of his fellow prisoners. This was forbidden, but he never missed a chance of breaking the rules in this respect. Any man of his ability who was at the same time anxious to learn would of course make rapid progress, and before he left prison the warder said he was as good a tailor with his three months' apprenticeship as many a man was with twelve. Ernest had never before been so much praised by any of his teachers. Each day as he grew stronger in health and more accustomed to his surroundings, he saw some fresh advantage in his position an advantage which he had not aimed at, but which had come almost in spite of himself, and he marveled at his own good fortune, which had ordered things so greatly better for him than he could have ordered them for himself. His having lived six months in Ashpit Place was a case in point. Things were possible to him which to others like him would be impossible. If such a man as Townley were told he must live henceforth in a house like those in Ashpit Place, it would be more than he could stand. Ernest could not have stood it himself if he had gone to live there, of compulsion through want of money. It was only because he had felt himself able to run away at any minute that he had not wanted to do so. Now, however, that he had become familiar with life in Ashpit Place, he no longer minded it and could live gladly in lower parts of London than that, so long as he could pay his way. It is from no prudence or forethought that he had served this apprenticeship to life among the poor. He had been trying in a feeble way to be thorough in his work. He had not been thorough. The whole thing had been a fiasco. But he had made a little puny effort in the direction of being genuine. And behold, in his hour of need it had been returned to him with a reward far richer than he deserved. He could not have faced becoming one of the very poor 
unless he had had such a bridge to conduct him over to them as he had found unwittingly in Ashpit Place. True, there had been drawbacks in this particular house he had chosen, but he need not live in a house where there was a Mr. Holt, and he should no longer be tied to the profession which he so much hated. If there were neither screams nor scripture readings, he could be happy in a garret at three shillings a week, such as Miss Maitland lived in. As he thought further, he remembered that all things work together for good to them that love God. Was it possible, he asked himself, that he too, however imperfectly, had been trying to love him? He dared not answer yes, but he would try hard that it should be so. Then there came into his mind that noble air of Handel's, great God, who yet but darkly known, and he felt it as he had never felt it before. He had lost his faith in Christianity, but his faith in something, he knew not what, but that there was something as yet but darkly known which made right right and wrong wrong. His faith in this grew stronger and stronger daily. Again there crossed his mind thoughts of the power which he felt to be in him, and of how and where it was to find its vent. The same instinct which had led him to live among the poor because it was the nearest thing to him which he could lay hold of with any clearness, came to his assistance here, too. He thought of the Australian gold and how those who lived among it had never seen it, though it abounded all around them. There is gold everywhere, he exclaimed inwardly, to those who look for it. Might not his opportunity be close upon him if he looked carefully enough at his immediate surroundings? What was his position? He had lost all, could he not turn his having lost all into an opportunity? Might he not, if he sought the strength of the Lord, find, like St. Paul, that it was perfected in weakness? He had nothing more to lose. Money, friends, character, all were gone for a very long time, if not forever. But there was something else also that had taken its flight along with these. I mean the fear of that which man could do unto him. Cantabil Vacus, who could hurt him more than he had been hurt already? Let him but be able to earn his bread, and he knew of nothing which he dared not venture, if it would make the world a happier place for those who were young and lovable. Herein he found so much comfort that he almost wished he had lost his reputation even more completely for he saw that it was like a man's life which may be found of them that lose it, and lost of them that would find it. He should not have had the courage to give up all for Christ's sake, but now Christ had mercifully taken all, and lo, it seemed as though all were found. As the days went slowly by, he came to see that Christianity and the denial of Christianity, after all, met as much as any other extremes do. It was a fight about names, not about things. Practically, the Church of Rome, the Church of England, and the free thinker have the same ideal standard and meet in the gentleman, for he is the most perfect saint who is the most perfect gentleman. 
then he saw also that it matters little what profession whether of religion or irreligion a man may make provided only he follows it out with charitable inconsistency and without insisting on it to the bitter end it is in the uncompromisingness with which dogma is held and not in the dogma or want of dogma that the danger lies this was the crowning point of the edifice when he got here he no longer wished to molest even the pope the archbishop of canterbury might have hopped about all round him and even picked crumbs out of his hand without running risk of getting a sly sprinkle of salt that wary prelate himself might perhaps have been of a different opinion but the robins and thrushes that hop about our lawns are not more needlessly distrustful of the hand that throws them out crumbs of bread in winter than the archbishop would have been of my hero perhaps he was helped to arrive at the foregoing conclusion by an event which almost thrust inconsistency upon him a few days after he left the infirmary the chaplain came to his cell and told him that the prisoner who played the organ in chapel had just finished his sentence and was leaving the prison he therefore offered the post to ernest who he already knew played the organ ernest was at first in doubt whether it would be right for him to assist at religious services more than he was actually compelled to do but the pleasure of playing the organ and the privileges which the post involved made him see excellent reasons for not riding consistency to death having then once introduced an element of inconsistency into his system he was far too consistent not to be inconsistent consistently and he lapsed ere long into an amiable indifferentism which to outward appearance differed but little from the indifferentism from which mr hawke had aroused him by becoming organist he was saved from the treadmill for which the doctor had said he was unfit as yet but which he would probably have been put to in due course as soon as he was stronger he might have escaped the tailor's shop altogether and done only the comparatively light work of attending to the chaplain's rooms if he had liked but he wanted to learn as much tailoring as he could and did not therefore take advantage of this offer he was allowed however two hours a day in the afternoon for practice from that moment his prison life ceased to be monotonous and the remaining two months of his sentence slipped by almost as rapidly as they would have done if he had been free. What with music, books, learning his trade, and conversation with the chaplain, who was just the kindly sensible person that Ernest wanted in order to steady him a little, the days went by so pleasantly that when the time came for him to leave prison, he did so, or thought he did so, not without regret. End of chapter 68 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman